Welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick and I'm here with Wendy. And as we mentioned last time, we have finished the Camino Nascent. But before we get into how we plan to go to Santiago from Trancoso, the end of the Camino Nascent, we thought it would be worthwhile wrapping up this Camino and just filling in some gaps and just talking about it with the overall perspective that we have now that we finished. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great Camino. I highly recommend it, although we'll also mention some reasons why it might not be for everybody. But it's one that I'm very glad that we did. And I think a lot of other people would really enjoy it too. So we want to give a few practical tips, but also give our own thoughts and experiences. Definitely. And there's always a little bit of recency bias when you're ranking your Caminos and things like that. And this is a strange one as well, because we're not finished the entirety of our Camino, but the Nascent itself, you know, I'd be hard pressed to say that we enjoyed any of our previous Caminos more than that. Yeah, which is really interesting because, you know, it's very different from the Frances, which was my, our first Camino, and that was always my initial idea of what a Camino was. Um, you know, that there are lots of pilgrims around, and for me, like, I, what I came away from the Frances with was that the spirit of the Camino was the people, the other pilgrims, that was where I found the spirit of the Camino was by, you know, communing with my fellow pilgrims. And on the Nascent, we haven't met any other pilgrims the whole way. So, you know, it's a very different experience in a lot of ways from what my initial idea of a commun- of a pilgrimage was. And yet, yeah, I think it's probably my favorite yeah i don't know if that's sort of the development of of us as pilgrims it's a little bit unusual in that way if we look at all of our caminos we've almost gone to fewer and fewer pilgrims with each successive one um, mm. and so it'd be interesting now to go back to something like the Frances and see if you know we still really enjoyed um that atmosphere now that we've done these solitary caminos since then um but anyway we're going to gush about them in a sense in a little uh, in a little bit here but as you mentioned, there are a few reasons why it may not be the Camino for everybody. And the first of this, of these, which you also touched on, is that if you're looking to meet lots of pilgrims, the Innocent is not for you. No, certainly not right now. I mean, we were walking it still in the midst of a pandemic, so it's an even, you know, more kind of extreme situation because there are even fewer pilgrims now than there would be in normal circumstances. Um, but even so, you know, it's a very new Camino, uh, in terms of being officially recognized and signed and promoted and things like that. Uh, I think we mentioned that it was officially inaugurated in 2018 from Evera and then the, the rest of it from Tavira to Evera was officially inaugurated in 2019. Uh, and it really hasn't been promoted very much at all globally like i think some portuguese people know about it um but english speakers and you know people on the forum for example where we uh get a lot of our information from about caminos like no one's really ever heard of it with the exception of some german speakers and we've talked about that before as well how there was this or still is this german guidebook that first came out when was it a long time ago now 2007 something like that yeah yeah. Maybe 2009, but yeah, around um, that time. Yeah, and so that author called it the Via Lusitana, 
Uh, it's more or less the same Camino, but it does go off in slightly different directions at some points. Um, but yeah, so some Germans and, you know, Austrians and Dutch people, people who can read German, um, have, some of them have been doing this Camino and some Portuguese have been doing this Camino, but very few other nationalities have ever heard of it before. And it is quite funny, as a result of that book, I'm assuming, uh, sometimes local people, when we pass them, will ask us if we're German. Uh-huh. They kind of know that we're not Portuguese and then they just assume that maybe we must be German apart from that. Um, but, you know, we saw some of the registers of the albergues, the few albergues that we stayed in. Uh, for example, the one in Amarelos, which has been the longest running albergue right since the beginning of the opening up of the Camino in 2018. And they'd had, I think, 46 people stay there only in three years. And we were the first non-Europeans. Right. So, yeah, it's, and the vast majority were Portuguese, and then there were some Spanish and then some Germans, basically. And then there were a couple from maybe Slovakia or Poland or something like that, and, and that was it. So, as you said, we did not see a single pilgrim in 36 days. So, especially if you're traveling by yourself, if the pilgrim atmosphere and feel and vibe is a big part of what the Camino is to you, then, in a sense, maybe you'd have to reconsider that. Um, if you're traveling as a, a couple or as a small group, then that obviously offsets that a little bit if you have somebody to talk to. But it's going to be a lonely Camino uh, in that way. There's no real getting around that, I guess. No, um, you know, at least for the foreseeable future for the next few years. I mean, who knows? It might really take off and, you know, become really popular. Like that can happen relatively quickly. But um, yeah, if you're listening to this in 2021 or 2022 or, the, you know, for the next few years, I think that it's going to be a pretty solitary Camino. All right. And so a lot of the other reasons why you may not want to choose this are related to that, are related to a lack of pilgrims, pilgrim infrastructure and things like that. So if you're looking for an alberga network where you can kind of guarantee that every night you're going to have a bed for five or ten euros, this is also probably not the Camino for you. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned in the 36 days that we walked it, we spent five nights in places that could be called albergues or that had alberga prices um, and the rest of the time we were staying in either budget hotels or sometimes even more like mid-range hotels or, or sort of rural hotels and then every now and then in a castle or a convent or something when we could manage that um, but certainly I, I'm sure we paid more for accommodation on this Camino than we ever have before just because of what's available and what's not and I don't think a lot of that was related to the pandemic I think yeah. last year there was a lot more when we walked the Camino Portuguese, the standard uh, Portuguese way. There was a lot. There were a lot more properties that were closed for the pandemic than there were this year. I felt. Right. Yeah. Comparing our two experiences of walking these two Caminos in pandemic times. Yeah. So I don't think it's that once the pandemic is over, all these new budget options are suddenly going to be available. And in a sense, sometimes there mm -hmm. there aren't really that many choices uh, because you're in very rural areas. Um, and so you just have to be aware that sometimes you might have to pay a fair bit for accommodation and that can add up when you're walking for a month on a Camino. Right. Yeah. Um, and we were traveling as a couple, so we were always getting double rooms in hotels. So that probably brings the cost per person down a bit. I imagine if you were walking it as an individual on your own, that would probably be a bit more expensive than it was for us. I think I might have said this before, I'm not sure, but... Budget hotels in Portugal are generally quite affordable. Uh, you can get a room often for 30 or 35 euros 
um, which is pretty much the same as you would pay for two dorm beds on the Frances in a lot of places, at least in private uh, albergues. Uh, but the issue was that the accommodation that was available was not always budget rooms. It was more like these, um, you know, rural tourism places that were catering to kind of a higher end clientele that wanted to get away from the big city and go and relax and pamper themselves in the countryside. And uh, so we were not really their target clientele, but we had to stay there because that was the only option available. Also though, one thing that might change in after the pandemic that will make it cheaper is I think that there might be some uh, kind of publicly offered forms of accommodation such as staying at the fire stations, which we did once on the Camino Nascent. Um, and we had tried to do it a second time and in a different village and we called and they said, oh, uh, because of the pandemic, we're no longer authorized to accept pilgrims right now, um, which is totally understandable. You know, you don't want your whole firefighting force to uh, be infected with COVID because of pilgrims staying with them. Um, but so there may be some more things like that. There was also the the nursing home that um, used to be an option and is no longer an option. Of course, in that particular case, there was another donativo in the form of Dona Joana, who we've mentioned. But um, so there might be some more things like that 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 would be, uh, you know, more accessible to a pilgrim budget, even if it's not a proper albergue per se. But in general, yeah, expect to pay more for accommodation overall on this Camino. All right. And the next one is that if you're a pilgrim who likes to make lots of stops along the way each day at cafes to drink coffee, to eat snacks, to eat lunch, uh, you're also going to struggle a bit on the nascent, um, especially in some of the rural parts of the Alentejo. Sometimes we did not go through a village or settlement of any kind all day. Yeah, that happened a number of times. From the starting point to the end point. And other times we maybe came across one village on the whole day. And so, you know, in terms of, well, we, we were quite lucky, I guess, just because of the kinds of pilgrims that we are, firstly, because we don't drink coffee, mm -hmm. um, which is helpful uh, when you can't get it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because we tend to uh, picnic most days on Camino anyway. Yeah. Uh, we just like to do that because it allows us to stop wherever we want to. And it just means that we know that we have food if, you know, if for some reason food is not available. But on the ascent, I would say most days you would have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times you're passing through villages with no services at all. And sometimes if they have services, it might just be one bar, which does some drinks, but doesn't do any food. And so I would think, yeah, the majority of the days we did not pass what could be called a restaurant at any point throughout the stage. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah, just to kind of... Uh uh, emphasize the fact that bars in these villages in Portugal are not what you would think of as a bar in, in Spain, for example. A bar in Spain would usually serve meals or some kind of food um, in addition to just drinks. But in lots of these small towns, you would only get drinks and maybe some peanuts or uh, tremosos, which are uh, lupins, I think they're called in English, but they're like a popular bar snack. You could get little tiny things like that to go along with your drink, but 
um, not much more, certainly not enough to make up a full meal. So yeah, I mean, we were, we're used to carrying some food with us, but we carried quite a bit more with us this time. Uh, and also some, some backup dinners because dinner, even, you know, once we arrived at our destination for the day, there weren't always places where we open where we could eat there either. So for example, we carried some couscous with us so that if we had to, we could just ask for hot water and then we would be able to make couscous, um, things like that. Yeah. You might want to bring, you know, save some room in your bag for a, an emergency food stash because it might come in handy. Definitely. And then you also have to be aware if you're going to be doing that, if you're going to be doing some self-catering that, again, in some of these rural areas, there aren't a lot of shops either. Right. And so some days you'll go an entire day um, without being able to buy any food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when you get into a, a town where you know that there's a decent grocery store and you can stock up, then you have to do that for sure. Yeah. And always remember the weekends too, because in the small towns, uh, all the shops will be closed for all day Sunday and usually in the afternoons on Saturday. And if you get stuck and, you know, say they close at 1 p.m. on Saturday, which would be really typical, and then you don't realize that until 2 or 3 p.m. on Saturday, then suddenly you have no way of getting food until the next Monday. And that actually happened to us. Um, <laughs> when we arrived in Alcuting, this was only on the third day and we arrived on a Saturday afternoon and there was a little store in Alcatine, but it was already closed and it was going to be closed again the next day. And so we had no food for the next day. We were able to eat dinner in Alcatine because there were restaurants. And then the next day, our end destination was Mishkita, which is this tiny village. Now, luckily, there's this restaurant there that we've talked about in several episodes, but you have to kind of book that in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time we arrived for lunch, they didn't really have anything. And we just had some... I don't even know what we ate that day, but we had some leftover food that we were able to eat for lunch. And then Uh they made us dinner because we were able to order that in advance. But then even the next day, there were also no shops. And that was the the first of the two times that we got lucky when a bread van rocked up to a village right at the time when we were in a village. Basically, we went pretty much three days without being able to buy any food. Right. Um, But we just had just enough to get sorted. And then we arrived in Myrtle and we were able to restock all of our provisions after that. Yeah, and that that really only happened in the Alentejo once we, well, previously when we were in the Algarve, it was much more built up, but that was only three days or so. And then I'd say it was a pretty clear um, transition, you know, once we crossed that border from Alentejo to the Betas, then it did become more populated quite quickly, and we were passing through more villages and towns, but still not all of them have a shop or a restaurant, so... Um, you know, you do need to plan a little bit carefully and not just look at the map and say, okay, we're passing through these two towns tomorrow, so we'll stock up there because that might not be an option. And so then the last thing to talk about um, in relation to this is that last season when we talked about the main Portuguese way, we were talking about how the level of English in Portugal is very good and we dedicated a whole uh, episode to language and that's certainly true. Um, But I would say that for the communion ascent, if you have a grasp of Portuguese or if you can quickly acquire one, that would be very, very helpful. I would imagine that to be true. We're kind of guessing here because we speak Portuguese, uh, not perfectly, but well enough to be conversant. And that's always the language that we speak to people in, you know, in, in all situations on the Camino, unless they uh, start speaking to us in English. But that has only happened a handful of times. It's been very, very rare. Um, almost always we've started the conversation in Portuguese and they've continued in Portuguese. 
or we've also had them come to us first and say to us in Portuguese, do you speak Portuguese? Right. Which is their way of sort of saying, I hope you do, because that's that's all I've got here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the level of, of English is very high, but I mean, as the, the usual caveat that applies everywhere applies here too, which is that English is spoken more widely by younger people in cities. Mm-hmm. And on the communion ascent, you're going to be dealing with older people in rural areas. Right. Um, and so many of the people who own accommodation, for example, are older people. Oh, the majority are older people and they're in rural areas. So, yeah, we found that almost nobody switched to English or even made any kind of hint that they were going to do that. Or if you told them what, you know, that, that we were English speakers or we said what countries we were from, that wouldn't sort of elicit any English out of anybody, which was, of course, fine for us. But yeah, um, that it could be an issue. There could be language barrier for sure, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's maybe worth mentioning is that a lot of older people do speak French instead of English. If they speak a second language, it's perhaps more likely to be French. And we, we did run into some French speakers uh, also because there are returnees, there are Portuguese people who immigrated to France or to French-speaking parts of Switzerland and worked there and lived there for decades and now they've retired and they've come back to Portugal and this whole time they've been saving up money to build a house in their village that they originally lived in when they grew up and now they've come back and returned to those villages and are living there or in some cases starting up new businesses too. Um, so you might run into some of those people. If you speak French, give it a try, because uh, that might come in handy. And, you know, I would also just say, I, I don't ever want to discourage anyone from, from traveling somewhere because they don't speak the local language. You know, I've met Chinese people who traveled all over Europe in their RV without speaking a word even of English, much less of all of the local languages in the different countries that they passed through. And they managed, you know, they used Google Translate, um, they would speak into it and then hold it up to whoever they were talking to. And uh, a lot of times it got mistranslated, but they, they found a way. So there is always a way and you can learn a bit of the language too. There are lots of great tools for doing that, which we have talked about in a previous episode. So, um, you know, don't let it scare you off, but do be aware that it would be very useful to learn a little bit of Portuguese. Yeah, not to derail us completely, but that Chinese couple in particular is kind of interesting. And they <laughs> latched onto you in Lisbon because they were trying to get a Russian visa um, and didn't speak anything except Chinese. And then you had to go and help them over and over again. Yeah, uh, it, it was a fun story. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a strange experience at the time. But, you know, it did show me that, hey, you know, this doesn't have to be a barrier and, um, you know, anyone can travel and you can find a way to do it. Yeah, but just bringing this back to the Nascent, what you probably are going to have to do is make some phone calls. Uh, there yep. are a few occasions where you're going to have to call the Junta de Freguesia, um, who are going to be able to provide you potentially with accommodation options um, or just a lot of the other possible places where you're going to be able to stay aren't always available on booking.com or another site like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you did make a lot of calls yep. um, and you would kind of expect to, to have to make those calls in, in Portuguese if if you possibly can. Yeah, which is something that I used to get nervous about doing, you know, having to speak Portuguese on the phone because 
you, you know, you can't see body language and, and it's, it's more difficult than, for me anyway, than speaking face to face. I've kind of gotten over that fear now because on this Camino, I've made a lot of phone calls, so it doesn't really phase me so much. But yeah, that's a good point that you probably will need to make some calls or get someone to make them for you. You know, you could ask in the accommodation where you're staying if they would call the, the accommodation in the next town for the next day. You know, you could finally probably find a way around it, but you will probably have to deal with some people on the phone in one way or another. All right. So having gone through some reasons why this might not be the Camino for you, let's go through some reasons why this is the Camino for you, uh, because we absolutely loved it, uh, as we've said, for all kinds of reasons. And so just to give a little bit of structure to this section, we're going to pick three things each that we particularly liked about the Camino, just to bring it all together a bit. Mm -hmm. right, do you want to go first? Okay. So number one, I would say... I really loved the rural nature of this Camino and how we were out in the countryside and in nature for so much of it. Um, yeah, for one, just being out in nature, uh, but also, you know, seeing the rural aspect of the country. Because on the um, Camino Portuguese, going across the, the western coast, the, the more popular one, um, sure, you're out in rural areas sometimes, but you're mostly going through lots of cities and, and towns and the most well-known towns and the largest towns, obviously Lisbon and Porto, and then you've got Coimbra and Tomar. Um, and, you know, that's a very important part of the country, but it's not the whole country. And, you know, this is Portugal too. And it's, it's a very different lifestyle, and I'm really glad that I was able to experience it and, and see how people live out here and pass through these teeny tiny hamlets where you only have two men left living in the village. Um, we had seen a little bit of that in Spain on the Camino de Madrid, but we'd never experienced anything like that in Portugal before. And so... Um, I'm just really glad to have a, a more comprehensive understanding of the country as a whole and and the different facets of it and, you know, particularly uh, the way that people live kind of out here in more remote areas. Yeah, I think in general there might be a tendency to think that all communos, very broadly speaking, are kind of similar in terms of, okay, you get some towns and, and cities, you get some rural areas, you get some road walking, some rural walking and, and whatnot. But really, if you break some of them down, if you look at this one in particular, it was very rural. Mm -hmm. And you know, much, much more so than the standard Portuguese way from Lisbon. Um, and so that, you know, there's a few different elements that go with that. Firstly, the actual path was a rural dirt path for almost all of it. Yes, and I loved that. I loved not being on asphalt. Um, you know, for me in particular, like it makes a huge impact on on how well my feet are going to do and how much pain I'm going to be on. Um, but I think for everyone, it's just a lot more pleasant to walk on dirt paths than it is to walk on a paved road. Yeah, definitely. I just think all aspects of you know, of what you might expect from a rural Camino, we really had on this Camino. And, and as we've mentioned, some days you don't pass any villages at all. So there's no kind of sprawl either. You know, you're often, you're just out of a town, even a major town, 
It depends on the circumstances. Obviously, coming into Evera was uh, the day that we talked about, which is our worst day on the descent because there was a lot of asphalt and, and, and whatever. And but, coming into Castello Branco as well, that was mm-hmm. also not a very pleasant day. But the majority of the time when you're coming in or out of a town, uh, it, that was very quick. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not walking for hours, you know, in the outskirts and among urban sprawl. You're just back into the countryside, you know, straight away. Mm-hmm. I remember in particular leaving Guarda. We were on the ancient Roman road, like right away. Um, yeah, yeah really from crazy. the center of the city. It just basically <laughs> begins. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was an incredible rural path and, and rural Camino. And I think we both really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, for sure. All right. My first one is Castles. Uh Uh-huh. We've seen a lot of those. So, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise to us, I guess, but we saw a lot of castles on this Camino. By my unofficial count, we saw 15 in our 36 days. And you can do the Camino a lot quicker than we did it. We took quite a slow uh, way. And so, you know, you can do it in 30 days or less, and then you're seeing a castle every two days. And at the beginning, there weren't as many. So there were were times where we felt like we were seeing a castle every day for Mm -hmm. four or five days in a row. And... I mean, castles are great. Everybody loves castles. Um, but it goes a little bit beyond that, I think. Um, you know, this is at its core a medieval pilgrimage, and there are a few symbols of the medieval age that represent it more than castles, both in terms of how feudal society operates and, and just other aspects of that society. And so to have this reminder of the medieval ages, you know, so often as we're walking um, was, I thought, really cool. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good point. And, you know, the, the interesting sort of counter to that is that we didn't see a lot of medieval churches. Uh, mm. Most of the churches we saw came from um, after that period in the sort of Renaissance period or in the, the Mamoline period, which is uh, late Gothic uh, turn of the 14, uh, 15th into the 16th century uh, at the earliest. And we saw only a couple of churches, maybe older than that, that were Gothic, for example, uh, and no Romanesque churches at all. And so... You know, when you're walking something like the Camino Frances, you see all these incredible churches, but you don't really see castles. Just off the top of my head, you have the castle in Ponferrada, and that's almost the only one that I can think of. Um, mm. But there are all these other amazing churches. And so it's kind of interesting to see um, that that was reversed on the Nascent. And another aspect about the castles that I really thought was interesting was that basically, because we were walking north, essentially what these castles did was they formed a, a, a line of defense um, that was a north-south line, essentially protecting the interior of Portugal from uh, invasion from Spain to the east. And when you're walking, as always when you're walking and when you're on pilgrimage, you have such a different perspective of everything. But when you're walking and you kind of understand the distances between towns, and in this case the distances between castles, and you kind of understand that it's one day's walk from one castle to the next castle, you can kind of really understand what life would have been like for people at that time. And... You know, not necessarily that they were doing pilgrimage, but people who had to travel either because they were going to uh, fairs or markets or for any kind of other reasons, or if they had to flee their town because there were people coming for them. You, you can kind of understand how the country is set up and how far you have to go to get to the next castle where you might be able to get refuge. And, and I just found that part really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. I don't know if I thought about it that... Um, precisely, but now that you bring it up, yeah, 
That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, when you're walking on the ramparts and climbing the towers and stuff, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I think about. Uh, and some of the ta- some of the castles were really great. I mean, some of them, there wasn't a huge amount left, maybe just one tower and some ramparts, but others had more towers. And, you know, it, and final thing before we get off castles is that it just meant that you had sort of something each day or every other day to kind of look forward to. You know, sometimes when you're in a community, you go through a stretch where maybe there's three or four days where you kind of feel that, Maybe you didn't see that many great things over that period or it wasn't as good as it was a week earlier or something like that. You know, communities sort of have their ups and downs in a, in a way like that. Um, but these castles kind of kept the ascent going and, you know, we'd sort of come to the next day and think, right, tomorrow, what's our day tomorrow? What's our uh, town at the end of the day? What does it have? Oh, it has a castle. Okay, well, that's cool. <laughs> we can go and check that out when we get there. And so it just sort of kept the whole thing interesting, I thought. Yeah, and there were so many of these towns that we'd never heard of before, and we had no idea what they had to offer, and then to discover, okay, yeah, there's actually a really well-preserved castle there, and in some cases there was more than that, you know. Trancoso, for example, which was the ending point, which had a beautiful castle, and is also a really beautiful town or village in itself. Like, there were so many surprises of things that, you know, places that were definitely worthy of being well-known tourist attractions uh, that we had never heard of before, even having lived here in the country for a few years. Um, So, yeah, I really enjoyed exploring those places. Do do you have a particular favorite castle or particular ones that you would recommend? Um, That's a tough one because they were a lot. Uh, The one in Beja, I really liked. Mm. Um, it has this very large, what they call a torre de menaging, which is translated as keep in English. But basically, almost all of these castles have one very large primary tower, which is called the torre de menaging. And it's usually built into the walls, it's sort of in one corner of the castle. Uh, in Beja, in particular, they had a really good uh, keep like this, and the walls were very good. I also really liked the castle in Mertola. Um, just because I love Myrtle in general. And they also have a very well-preserved Torre de Menaging. And also the views out are really spectacular over the countryside around Myrtle. But there are lots. And, you know, some of them are start to become a little bit similar to mm-hmm. some of the other ones. But then there are other ones that are different as well. Evremont, which has this sort of... It has this old, these old castle walls, and then there's a an unusual looking keep on the inside, which I think dates from a, a more later period. It's post medieval, I think, um, but the views from there are absolutely incredible, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I found that typically I could still find something new or something of interest uh, in every castle that we visited, and so I was still enthusiastic to visit castles even all the way up to the end. Good. I did skip one or two, maybe just one of the castles because. I was really tired at the end of the day and needed to rest, but but yeah, you are always going home on the castles. All right, my next highlight is the local people and the interactions that we had with them, because I feel like we had a lot more of those on this Camino than we have uh, on previous Caminos, including you know our previous Camino in Portugal. And maybe that's probably it's because we were traveling through the rural areas where, you know, and also on a not very well-known Camino where they don't see very many pilgrims and also just don't see very many outsiders in general. So people were quite curious about us and were very friendly 
And um, yeah, I feel like I had uh, lots more kind of in-depth conversations with people this time around than, than I have in the past. I feel like my Portuguese has improved over the course of this Camino, which is good. I mean, to be honest, I'm speaking a lot more Portuguese on Camino now than I do in my daily life in Lisbon. You might think, okay, you've been living in the country for four and a half years, so surely you speak it all the time on a regular basis. That's not really true. Um, you know, we we work from home, and um, yeah, I mean, I do my grocery shopping and talk to the cashier in Portuguese, but uh, I can easily go, you know, a few days without really having a conversation. I, I can go quite a few days without having a conversation <laughs> in Portuguese in Lisbon, um, whereas here it happened a lot more often. And I mean, I guess it's related to m my previous, uh, you know, highlight, which was seeing the rural aspect of the country. My all, all three of my my highlights are kind of related in some way. But yeah, I really enjoyed getting to know these people and and what their lives are like here and um, talking, also talking to, you know, the people who are running the albergues and who are involved with promoting this Camino and uh, hearing about it from their perspective. I thought all of that was really interesting. You know, one of the things that, that makes this Camino kind of interesting is that because it's a, a top-down effort by the government, there's a lot of promotion yet not a lot of pilgrims and so all of the people in these villages they know what the communal is um, especially I felt later once we got to the betas there was a lot of signage for the communal and a lot of the towns would have an information board uh, as you went into the town or even the the main sign to say that you were going into the town would have Camino de Santiago written uh, on it as well mm. and so I feel like the people there are sort of, they understand that there's this promotion going on and they're sort of waiting for the pilgrims. Hmm. And then we come along and then they wanted to talk to us. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I found that interesting as well. I thought there was almost more recognition of who we were and what we were doing than on the main Portuguese way, because especially on the early part of the, the Portuguese way, people don't really know what you're doing. They think maybe you're going to Fatima. Um, mm, yeah. And then they sort of say, okay, have a nice holiday <laughs> at the end. Um, they say, bo viaging or, or bo caminhada, have a nice walk. Um, but we, I think people, yeah, seem to be more aware, even though we were further away from Santiago, they just sort of seen a lot of the, the kind of advertising, so to speak, or the promotion and kind of got it. Um, mm. that if you see, you know, some strange looking people with a backpack, that's probably what they're doing. I remember in one instance, and now I don't remember where it was, we saw some people working in a field and they were probably mm. 50 meters away, maybe more yeah. from the trail. And they sort of yelled out and were saying hello. And then they said, are you going to Santiago de Compostela? We said, yes. And that was a really nice moment because we were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from Santiago. We weren't anywhere near it, but they obviously were aware of it and could recognize from you know, half a football pitch away, what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, I remember that too. That was really nice. All right. Uh, so my second highlight is about as far away from castles as you can get, and that is wildflowers. Yeah, not very related. I mean, you might see wildflowers growing in castles. Well, you do, but just in terms of the scale of um, what you think that you would be attracted to, they're kind of at opposite ends. 
And you wouldn't think that wildflowers is something that would be important in a Camino or would be worth planning around, but it really is. Mm. And when I've heard people talking about wildflowers during springtime on Camino, the Camino in particular that they always refer to is the Via de la Plata. And that runs from Seville up through the western part of Spain. And the Camino that we did runs essentially parallel to this, just a little bit further west, where we started in Tavira is more or less at the same latitude as Seville. And so we saw wildflowers every single day for 36 days. And there were so many of them, there were so many different colors, um, and they were, it just added so much to the Camino, especially in the Alentejo, because the Alentejo is kind of brown. Uh, at this time of year with the with the the overgrown wheat fields and just to have this splash of color everywhere was really cool and as we've mentioned a couple of times you know a few times we had to kind of hack our way through to find a path because it was so overgrown but it would often be wildflowers would be involved with this yeah very much so you know we'd be you know we'd have these weeds and flowers and everything you know waist high or higher as we were trying to find our way and trying to find a path through all of this um but it just always kind of brightened the walk every day uh, is that you would see these reds and yellows and whites and purples and pinks um, and it, it was cool at one point I got an app uh, to help identify what the flowers were because it's not sort of our specialty no we know very little about botany or about gardening or things like that if you're someone who's into gardening and, and you know about flowers then you will probably appreciate it even more perhaps a lot more than we did but you know, coming from two people who, you know, really don't know about flowers, even for us, it, it really added a lot to the Camino. The one point I will say a little bit against that is that if you suffer from allergies, you might struggle um, doing this Camino in spring, as I did a little bit. Um, I have mild allergies, I would say, and one day in particular, it was really bad. And I took extra medication that didn't help. And um, I really struggled that day. But for most of the rest of it, it was fine. Yeah. Even though I was often like in among the flowers, just taking pictures and stuff like that. So I probably didn't do myself any favors by hanging out with the bees. Um, but um, I did have to take medication for allergies. So if that's something that you're affected uh, by, then um, you certainly would need to do that too. But if you're not, or if you're able to get through it, going at springtime, it's a spectacular time of year for the flowers. For sure. My next one, so I said that mine are all kind of related in some way. I've talked about the rural nature of the Camino and then the people living in these rural areas. And so my third one is going to be the produce, the local produce, which obviously is grown in rural areas too. But I really loved, you know, seeing the the individual fruits and vegetables and, and different items that are produced in the different regions and seeing how that changed as we walked along. Uh, you know, in the Algarve, you have the oranges, and then in the Alentejo, you have the cork, and that's not something that you eat, but it is uh, something that's uh, locally grown and produced, and it's a, a very important uh, local product of, of the Alentejo and of Portugal as a whole. And you also have the olives. And the olives, yeah, yeah, we saw a lot of olive trees there as well. Um, and then in the betas, you have the cherries, which uh, we have talked about in excess before. That was a huge surprise, and uh, yes, one that I will forever associate with, with this Camino. And, you know, living in a big city, uh, it's very easy to 
just buy these things and not really think about how they made it there. Um, you know, and just think that all of your food comes from the supermarket without really thinking beyond that to, to the people who, who produced it and all of the, the effort involved in that and how that actually happens and how, how it gets to you. So I think it was very beneficial to kind of see that with my own eyes. And now definitely every time I eat cherries, I'm going to see those cherry trees that we walked past and, and think about, um, you know, how many cherries there are on a tree and what time of year they're picked and, uh, you know, how they're picked. And yeah, I just really enjoyed getting a better understanding of that. And my final highlight is just the adventure of it all. And this, uh, you know, there are a couple of aspects to this. Um, you know, we didn't set out on this Camino thinking that we would be quote unquote trailblazers on the Camino. You know, it would have been helpful to us if more people had done it before us and written mm. blogs and stuff telling us what it was all about. Mm. Um, you know, we chose this Camino basically because it was the only one that really made sense for us because we wanted to do a long Camino and it really had to be in Portugal because the border with Spain was closed when we began. And there was very, very little information about it. Um, and so it was just kind of exciting to feel like we were walking a, a Camino that hardly anybody had walked before. And it's funny because it's the exact opposite of the feeling on something like the Frances, where part of the point of it is that you're walking in the footsteps of, you know, these pilgrims for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's also amazing. But this was, you know, at the opposite end of that spectrum, but yet still something that, yeah, it just, it just felt exciting knowing that we were treading in places where not that many people had before and as we've said most of the other people most of the few people who have done this Camino are Portuguese and I think a lot of people probably have only just done sections of it mm -hmm. not really walked the whole thing uh, I was keeping a live thread on the Camino de Santiago forums and I think a lot of people you know I do that basically for every Camino that we do and this one got more attention because people hadn't heard of it and didn't know anything about it. And it was kind of exciting, I, I hope, for other people to follow what we were doing. And so that was cool for us to have that connection kind of appropriate during the pandemic to have this um, virtual connection with, with other pilgrims who were interested in this Camino or who were interested in Portugal in general. And so, yeah, it just felt like we were breaking new ground on the Camino, which, which is cool because, you know, once you've done a few Caminos, um, yeah, it's nice to feel like you're doing something new and exciting. Uh, to add that to your Camino experience. And then the other aspect of it is the, the I guess, the physical adventure, which we've talked about a few times, is that sometimes, uh, you know, it was difficult to find the path. I don't want to say it was difficult to find the path. That only happened a couple of times. The way marking was very good, but, you know, so many times the path was so overgrown. Mm -hmm. um, and even usually when you're walking on a kind of a standard two-track dirt road so it's a car road but there's almost no cars at all so that middle section in between the two tracks you know which is usually just like a bit of grass would be you know two feet high of, of weeds and, and wheat and stuff and so you know sometimes I would take photos of you when you were in front of me and you just have all of these weeds and and wheat stalks that would come up almost to your shoulders mm. and so we were just walking through this path and you could just feel that nobody had really walked through it you know recently before us and so yeah that was that was exciting to every day we sort of felt like it was a big adventure and we didn't know what was coming and that was really cool
Yeah, I totally agree. It did feel like a big adventure. Sometimes it was a little bit nerve wracking, you know. The, I did freak out a little bit when we couldn't find the trail because there were, it was so overgrown that we didn't see that there was a trail there and we didn't have phone service and didn't know where we were, what we were going to do. Um, you know, also the accommodation, like it wasn't always obvious if we were going to be able to find accommodation every night. We did in the end. But yeah, there was one point where we thought that we might just have to take a train or a bus back to the town where we had stayed the night before and, you know, because we didn't know if we'd be able to find anywhere to sleep where at the at our actual endpoint. So there were a lot of unknowns. But then yeah, I think the more we went along and the more confident I became and and probably we both became and um yeah just kind of settled in to this new normal of what a camino is like and uh yeah it was it was a great adventure and i really enjoyed it so as we've mentioned the camino nascente ends in trancoso and when we first kind of found out about it we thought well that's just a random town in the middle of portugal so what's what's the point of that and basically to make a long story short we went through, we've been through three different plans for how we were going to continue to Santiago from Trancoso. And at first, because the first thing that we, the first time we sort of heard of the Nascent was that we were actually looking at a different Camino in the same area, which is called the Camino du Est. And we had seen this marked on the Wise Pilgrim map, and that basically informed all of our limited planning mm. right at the very start. And we thought, okay, if, if nothing else, we can do this Camino because we see it here on the map, so it must exist. Right. And the first resource that I found was a blog that compared the Camino du Est with the Camino Nascent. And it basically recommended the Nascent as being better for walkers because the stages were shorter and because there was less road walking. And so that was why we chose it. And then later on, we found some other resources and we were able to kind of put it together. But at, at the beginning, we were just kind of thinking of this complete south to north idea between these two Caminos, the Nascent and the Est. And, and the Est is a little bit further east, but they basically run parallel. And we thought at the end of the Nascent, we could basically skip back to the Est and then keep going further north and just get into Spain as quickly as we could that way. And then we would be on the Camino San Abres going to Santiago. Basically, the day that the first day that we were in Tavira, I posted um, something to a Portuguese language Facebook group about the Camino de Santiago and said, we're here in Tavira and we are excited to walk the Camino de Sant. And then somebody wrote uh, in their reply, oh, when you, once you get to Trancoso, are you going to switch to the uh, Camino Torres and then are you going to switch to the Portuguese interior and go to Santiago that way? And then I saw it and thought, okay, sure, <laughs> let's do that. Why not? That makes sense. And that was basically the... Uh, that was basically when I realized what the whole point was of this Camino Nascent finishing in Trancoso is that it joins up with this Camino Torres. And the Camino Torres is a Camino that runs from Salamanca in Spain, more or less due west, and eventually it sort of heads sort of west-northwest, but it comes into Portugal and then goes up to Braga, and then it connects with the central route of the main Portuguese way, and it goes to Santiago that way. But it goes through Trancoso, and so if you're going to uh, finish the Nascent and you want to keep going, that's the best thing to do is then to just hop onto the Torres. And so after three stages of that, you can join the Portuguese interior. And so that was our second plan was mm -hmm. to do that. Which made a lot more sense than the SG because now that we know more about the 
uh, well, about the three different Caminos that start in the south and that are being promoted by the Alentejo region. I kind of get the impression that the Camino uh, Dueste is uh, still in the planning phases and that, you know, they don't really have a proper route mapped out. And that's why it is best for cyclists and not walkers, because the distances are very long in between the towns and it's basically just following the road. My impression is that they will, you know, develop uh, a path that's more suitable for walking. But um, and if so, we would love to do it in the future. So hopefully that comes about. Yeah, just to not to derail this completely, but basically just on that point. So the the Est was launched and I don't know who by or, or with what real purpose in 2010. And then much later, sort of 2018, 2019, as you've talked about, the Caminos de Santiago, Alentejo and Gibetejo, basically the Alentejo government has launched these three new Caminos, uh, including the Camino Nascent. And the Est and the Nascent already shared a couple of stages and were very similar. And basically what's happening now is that the Caminos de Santiago, Alentejo and Gibetejo are rebranding part of the old Est into what they're calling the Camino de Haya. And this is only in the Alentejo. Because it's being run by the Alentejo government, they're basically taking what is the most kind of famous part or what are the parts with the most highlights of the old Camino de Est and, and completely rebranding it. And it's not a coincidence that it starts right at the close to the border of the Alentejo with the Algarve, mm -hmm. and then it finishes right near the border of the Alentejo with the Betas. And so what that means is that this kind of one part of the old Camino de Oeste is, is about to be kind of relaunched and promoted, but the rest of it is just kind of forgotten. And so right. it's almost like it's being discontinued, if that's even possible um, to think about a Camino as that way. Uh, it might be easy to think of it as some old software program that's just not being uh, further developed anymore. And so it's just no longer compatible with, mm. with anything else. So we had no idea what was going to um, face us on the Camino West right at the northern part of Portugal. But in any case, it made much more sense to go uh, along the Torres. Now, the problem with this second idea was that once we got to Lamego, we would switch to the Portuguese interior, which then goes all the way up into, um, it crosses the border at Chaves, is the Portuguese border town, and then it goes into Spain and to Galicia, to Orense, and then to Santiago from there. The problem with that was that we wouldn't be able to do the complete Portuguese interior. We would miss, uh, I think, two or three stages at the beginning. And, I mean, you can debate whether communities even have a start point or not, and we've talked about that before, but it just seemed like that would be a little bit disappointing to basically do some of the Torres and then some of the Portuguese interior. And then one day I woke up and just had this other idea, um, which was that we could continue on the Torres for longer up to Braga. And then from Braga, there's another Camino which is being developed and it's, well, let's call it a new Camino, but it's also a very old Camino, as we were reminded of today, that it's a 2,000-year-old Camino. Uh, and it's called the Jeira e dos Ajeiros, which is a difficult name to say. Um, but basically what it means is it's the Camino of Roman roads and of people who transport wine. Yes, <laughs> that is what the name translates as. So the Jeira, uh, what is the name for this ancient Roman road that we're going to be following uh, on this Camino. Uh, I think another more official name in terms of the numbers, the, the Romans numbered their roads, and I believe this is the number 18, road number 18, something like that. 
Um, but some of the milestones uh, say Jada on them, G-E-I-R-A. So that's where they got that first half of the name. And apparently this is the road that has the most ancient Roman milestones. So we're going to be passing some of those, which will be cool. Yeah, and so the idea was that because this starts in Braga, this would give us a kind of second complete Camino to go with the Camino Nascent, and of course the Camino de Torres, that would have to be a kind of link Camino between the two, because it starts in Salamanca, and we're nowhere near that. Mm-hmm. When we finished in Trancoso, it wasn't practical in any way to do the the entirety of the Torres. Um, but at any rate, that's what we are going to do next. Mm-hmm. And so in the next episode, we will tell you all about the Torres as we continue towards Santiago. Until then, buen camino. And buen camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.